We're going to kick off episode 395 with the song Return of the Skeleton by the band The Surf Zombies. They're a surf band based out of Iowa with a number of shows coming up. I'll talk about that here in a little bit. They are opening up the podcast this week. And the podcast, well, it's Monster Kid Radio, where we talk about the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to the show this week. I'm actually back home at Monster Kid Radio Central here. Here at MKR headquarters, I'm able to bring you the show as, well, kind of, sort of, normal, sort of. So this week, what do we got? We've got Christopher Page, the man from Orphaned Entertainment, Time Shifters. He's going to be here to talk about a Bela Lugosi film called Night of Terror. That was a fun conversation. I love talking with him, man. I love having him here on the show, and I'm so glad that he was able to work with my schedule to make that happen, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. And of course, during that conversation, we go off track because that's what monster kids do. We end up talking about copyright and public domain issues, that sort of thing. It's just all over the place, but in a good way. And as always, there are spoilers. You'll get a warning about that. Before that, though, you're going to hear Kenny's Famous Monsters of Filmland segment talking about that magazine, Bela Lugosi, Night of Terror. It's just a lot of fun. Also, heads up, spoilers for the next piece of the show you're going to hear as well. Earlier tonight, I was actually at the Joy Cinema for Weird Wednesday, and they were showing one of my favorite films of all time. So sue me. It's Dracula vs. Frankenstein from 1971. And you know what? It's really late right now. It's like 2 in the morning on Thursday, and I want to get this episode out. So I'm not going to edit that 15-minute chunk of audio that I recorded there with Jeff Pellier there in the lobby at the Joy Cinema, as well as a couple of other people that started huddling around while I had the recorder out. And like I said, it's after 2 a.m. I want to get this show going, so let's do this. circling around uh, mysterious happenings at night uh, strange noises emanating from the dark leave Karlstadt leave now and never come back stay away from them they mean you great harm starring Caroline Monroe as the Baroness what was the sinister secret she hid beneath her dark spectacles? Martine Beswick as her sister Uriel, malevolent and evil. You would sacrifice all that we've done merely to quench your innate desire oh, for violence. Oh, what if I did? Veronica Carlson as Anna, the one woman in the village of Karlstadt willing to stand against these angels of death. I can fight you. We can fight you! Christopher Neem as Llewellyn, a man of faith, locked in mortal combat with overwhelming evil. If we leave them alone, maybe they'll leave us alone. 
also starring Joshua Kennedy as the mysterious Dr. Pritchard. And introducing Georgina Dugdale, Gooey Film's latest star discovery, the Gorgon's most beautiful victim. See all of this and more when you visit the House of the Gorgon. Trust you out! Every unclean spirit, every satanic power, in the name and by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ! We let things pile up in the DVR, we add them to our queues, we wait for the DVDs and Blu-rays, we time shift. The Time Shifters podcast, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, superheroes, comedy, action, film, television, maybe some not-so-current events. Find us on iTunes or at timeshifterspodcast.com. I am... Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula. The original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat, and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you, today? Tell me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms, and he made me drink. Hello, Monster Kid Radioheads. This week's film, Night of Terror, was named in Famous Monsters 100 as part of the filmography of its top build star, Bella Lugosi, who was commonly seen in the pages of Famous Monsters. It all started in issue one, where he was listed amongst the heroes of horror, along with Lon Chaney Sr. and Jr. and Boris Karloff. Throughout FM's first 191 issues, Bella was featured on nine covers most commonly as Dracula. FM paid special tribute to him in issue 92 from September of 1972, which is a must-have for any Lugosi fan. This special issue has four articles spanning 44 pages dedicated to Lugosi and features 58 photos, many rarely seen elsewhere. 
Corey Ackerman, in his opening editorial, had this to say about the issue. We want Bella. We want Bella. All right, fans. Lugosi is here. 43 years after he first donned the cape of Count Dracula on the stage. 41 years after he immortalized the role on the screen. 16 years following the day he was finally laid to rest in Holy Cross Cemetery, Inglewood, California. The King of the Vampires rises again in all his fabled power and glory in a tribute to him truly befitting a king. King Kong. King Karloff. You've sung the praises of the issues dedicated to them and made instant collector's items of them. Now the Luciferian Bela Lugosi receives his due in this issue, which is due to be a sellout. In a special dedication in the letters section of this issue 92, fans who had requested a special issue were mentioned, including once-frequent Monster Bash guest Richard Sheffield and Alex Gordon, Lugosi co-star Carol Borland, and the last fan mentioned, Bash Perennial and Monster Kid Radio guest Frank Delostrito. So if you're a Bella Lugosi fan, you owe it to yourself to seek out and acquire Famous Monsters number 92. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula. And I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited. And occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Von Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, I want to publicly thank this week's guest for allowing me a little bit of wiggle room when it comes to timing. You see, about 30 minutes ago, I had a lot of cat urine all over me, and <laughs> this week's guest was gracious enough to let me clean up before we start recording. Well, I didn't want that coming through the Skype lines, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> Now we have to take Sam and Smoke to the vets, uh, just, you know, wellness check and all that. And Smoke does not like to go. So there is a little bit of a, a delay getting started. But, you know, Chris is the man. He understands. Christopher Page. Thank you very much. It feels like it has been forever. I don't think it's been that long, but it feels like it's been forever. Well, Monster Bash, I guess, was the last time. That counts. Yeah, I was going to say Monster Bash counts, but it wasn't like an actual full-on guesting like we're doing right now. So, True. yeah, I can, I can see that. Okay. Well, how have things been? Things have been well. Things have been busy. We were just briefly talking before we went online here that, you know, there's a lot of adulting going on and I've been having my own share. Uh, fortunately, none of it has peed on me, but uh, <laughs> I've had my share. But other than that, it's uh, it's been pretty good. Right on. Right on. How's the podcasting going? You've got like two, three, five shows going right now? Uh, no, thankfully not. <laughs> no, just the two. I don't have the time for anything more than that. Mm -hmm. No, every, everything's been going really just fantastic. Uh, Lydia and I are on our seventh year of Orphan Entertainment now. Congratulations. That's awesome. Considering this was just like this sort of, oh, you know what? No one would, would be fun kind of thing. And I can't believe we're still doing it six years going on seven years later. It's just 
it's pretty amazing just talking about old films, films not unlike the one we're going to talk about today. You and Lydia uh, have a great rapport and chemistry on Orphaned Entertainment. I just love listening to you guys talk about, even if it's a movie that I know nothing about or I haven't seen, because I try to watch a lot of the movies that are talked about on the different podcasts that I'm going to listen to, and you know I don't always have time. But even with you guys, even if I haven't seen the film, there's still this genuine friendship that comes through, and that just makes for a fun conversation. I'm glad that comes through, because even I sit here, I'll sit here, we'll do the conversation. She's changed my mind on some films just by talking about the movie. I just have so much fun talking with her. I think I sometimes rate some of these movies a little higher than, than I would otherwise because I've had so much fun talking with her about it. And then I sit there and edit the podcast and I'm grinning from ear to ear listening to the two of us talk. Yeah, I'm glad that comes through to other people. That, that, that's really nice to know. We just have so much fun doing it. And, you know, I know we both think it's fun. So I'm glad others do too. Right on. And what's the other show? Time Shifters. Time Shifters podcast has been uh, reborn a couple years ago. So we're now, uh, I guess we're on our second year now. Matt Flynn and I have joined forces. He's a local movie fan and he's kind of helped take Time Shifters in a fantastic direction. You know, it's not all sci-fi. It's not horror. It's just, it's just a lot of just any film that we really want to talk about. A lot of times it's just films from with, with a lot of nostalgia for at least one of us. And it, it turns out to maybe be a film that the other hasn't seen. So it's often a first-time watch, or maybe it's a first time in ages since one of us has seen the film. So it really makes kind of a real fun um, you know, walk down memory lane or a learning experience for one of us. And uh, it, it's been a lot of fun. And we get a chance since he's local, he and I can actually sit in the same room, which is really nice to discuss these things. And uh, we, it's been going really well. I will make sure that the promos for those podcasts are played somewhere in this episode. Listeners may have already heard one, but I'll make sure they get played here so people can find it. And I'll make sure there's links in the show notes as well, of course. Always appreciate that, Derek. It was awesome to see you at Monster Bash and to chat it up a little bit. And just, you know, we're actually recording uh, the week before the October Monster Bash. Are you going to go? No, I wish. Wouldn't that be awesome? Same here. Same here. I'm... Not going to go, unfortunately. Just can't get out there. And, uh, man, I wish I could. I'm missing my Bash family. Yeah, I'm, well, and I'm a fraction of the distance from it, but it's just a matter of, of, of time and money. October's busy. I have a teenage son at home with a lot of school stuff going on. I've got a lot of work stuff going on. And then trying trying to get away as much as I would like to. I just It, it just doesn't work. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge for monster kids during October anyway uh, to add extra – events like that and man I, I hope everybody's having a blast listeners won't hear this until probably november so it'll have coming down by now and i hope, <laughs> I everybody, hope everyone had fun exactly i hope everybody had enough fun for chris and i as well you know since we couldn't be there i hope you guys lived it up for us a little bit just a little bit yeah yeah the monster bash family is pretty awesome they 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 do put on some fantastic shows I was really hoping to get up to their big uh, movie marathon thing up in uh, what was it, Cleveland? Right. I had really, I had plans. I was, I was ready to go. I, I had hotel books and everything, and then life just got in the way, and I had to cancel everything. Oh. And I was like, oh, I was just, I was like, I was like a week away, and then it's like, nope, nope, not going to be able to make it. I'm like, Argh! oh man, killed me. Well, next summer, next summer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, next summer, the the big one with House of the Gorgon and everything else happening next next summer. So. That's what I'm That's looking right. at. I'm trying to stay positive. Yep. Oh yeah, I will definitely, I will definitely be there. Definitely be there next year for the the whatever you want to call it, spring or summer bash. I will be there because it has turned into this 
strange sort of dysfunctional family reunion. You know, I don't even, I don't even go so much for the films anymore or the guests anymore. I go just to meet up with, with everyone there with you, with, with Mary, everyone from the B movie cast, uh, Rod and Troy or one or the other are there. Those are the people I go to see now. That's the bash for me. Yeah. It's the community, you know, it's, you know, we're all part of the same community anyway online, but to actually have us all in one place, that's just extra special. Oh yeah. When you can actually sit down and have a drink and eat some food and, or just sit around the table and just talk with people and not always talking about monster movies, not always talking about the things that go on at the bash. Sometimes it's just catching up on things that are going on with life. And that's okay too, because we actually become actual friends, you know, not just somebody we see online. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So this is the Monster Bash podcast. Thanks for tuning in. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I tried to do at Monster Bash with everybody was play around to the classic five. And you know, we're going to do it again today on the show. Yeah. Okay. I've been nervous about this. I'm always nervous about this. Oh man, there's no wrong answers. For listeners who don't know, uh, there are no wrong answers. This is a game, an icebreaker. I've got a deck of cards here. Each card's got a this or that. What movie do you prefer? Better style question. It, it's a conversation starter. And we're going to play a round of the Classic Five with Chris Page. Hi, are you ready? I am as ready as I'm going to be. Card number one. This is actually from the uh, Kaiju deck, which will be in production here soon. Who's your favorite Godzilla foe? Oh, Godzilla foe. If you call her a foe, it'd be Mothra. I don't know what it is. But, you know, if... You've got a uh, a monster that has a song. I'm a sucker for it. <laughs> <laughs> a monster with a song. Okay, so Mothra, Green Slime, The Blob. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, I, I was wondering where you're going with that. But yes, they all have songs, correct? Yeah, <laughs> I, I was trying to think of any more, but yeah. Okay. King Caesar. Okay. King Caesar has a, another, right in the in the Godzilla universe has its song. I love King Caesar. so oh, there, there you go. go. Jet Jaguar, Punch, Punch, Punch. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is. You give him a song. I'm I'm in. I think Mothra and Godzilla have fought at least once. So, yeah, we can we'll call it a foe. Sure, sure. Why not? All right, card number two. We're gonna pull. Oh, this is from the Bash exclusive deck. Ooh, okay. What's your favorite man in ape or man in gorilla suit movie? Uh, see, these are the ones. Everyone you have on your show is so much better at thinking on your feet and coming up with this stuff. It's all in editing, man. Yeah, and you know, I I, I honestly I am not well-versed in the man in the gorilla suit movies. It, it is just sort of like a subgenre of these things that I've never really dived very deep into. I'm sure I've seen some to pull out a name or say, yes, that's my favorite. I, I can't do it. Honestly, I just, I can't answer the question. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll pull on a substitute card too then also from the bash deck. What's your favorite classic horror or suspense television series? Oh, television series. Ooh. Gosh, I mean, the you know, the go-to is always things like Twilight Zone or, um, oh, what was the, um, oh, uh, the dark, oh, no, uh, I'm blanking on the name. Okay. Dark. Uh, no, it wasn't. Dark, no, no, dark Shadows was a soap opera. That wasn't it. Right. Dark that, Shadows That was is... the vampire and all that uh-huh, stuff. No. Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I can't <laughs> think of it. <laughs> is it an anthology show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was like like things like it was like a Twilight Zone or Outer Limits, but it was the the the, the more horror themed. Oh, I can almost see the opening in my head, but I can't. <laughs> hey, I'm just gonna cut in here real quick from the post production edit, and 
uh, let people know that uh, Christopher and I actually spoke afterwards, and it was Tales from the Dark Side he was thinking of. Tales from the Dark Side. All right, back to the recording. All right, all right, all right. We'll pull the third card from our core right. deck. Third and last, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, here we go. What's your favorite Bela Lugosi role? Oh, okay. This is an interesting one. Bela Lugosi role. This is actually kind of a fun because I've been trying to fill in a lot of gaps with Lugosi, you know, trying to find some of the films that I'm not as familiar with and everything and kind of watching some of his stuff. And he's done some fantastic stuff. But I still, if you just, if you're just asking for like my favorite Lugosi role, I still have to fall on Dracula. It's the, like the iconic one. He's done better films or maybe he's done better roles or better had better parts. But I just, I, I mean, come on, that's Dracula. And I, I can't, <laughs> how do you beat that? I would do almost anything to have had a chance to see him play Dracula on stage. How oh, amazing absolutely. would that have been? Oh, that would have been fantastic. Because, I mean, that's really where he really had full master of the role. I mean, we see him for, what, 30, 40 minutes in film? I mean, how cool would it have been to see him do it on stage in a role that he was that comfortable with, that he had done night after night for however long it was that, that ran? That would have been so nice. Oh, would have been amazing. Would have been amazing. All right, next question. What's your favorite mummy movie? Ooh, mummy movie. Hmm. It's been a long time since I've seen the original uh, Karloff mummy movie. I've been thinking about diving back into those. But what was the one I just watched? I just rewatched the uh, Hammer Mummy film, which is a lot of fun. With uh, Christopher Lee? With Christopher Lee, yeah. Uh, which is definitely a lot of fun. So maybe just because you're asking me today and I just watched that, I'll go with the Hammer Mummy. <laughs> there you go. Egypt, 4,000 years ago. A land of strange rituals and savage cruelty. Many of their secrets are still hidden from the eyes of 20th century man. Secrets that protect their dead. Supernatural powers that once released can live again in our modern world. The Mummy, the Living Dead, bringing terror and death across 4,000 years. He was a high priest of the great god Karnak, until one night, he attempted the ultimate in blasphemy. He was condemned to guard forever the princess he had loved and protect her from intruders. Go now. Go and destroy those who desecrated the tomb of our princess. He who robs the graves of Egypt dies. He who robs the graves of Egypt dies. And it has been a while. Yeah, it, it has been a while since I've dived in, since I've watched. I, I guess it was about a year, two years ago. I went through all the Universal Mummy films, 
And it's been a long time since I've done the Hammer films. I've been thinking about diving back into those again. Well, they're fun. They're fun. And they're short, so you can get through them pretty quickly, too. Yeah, so. exactly. All right, next question. What is your favorite Ray Kellogg film, The Giant Gila Monster or The Killer Shrews? Oh, I think I have to go with Gila Monster. Say, did you see the skid marks out here? They go at a direct right angle to the direction of travel. No digs in the macadam either. Somebody was hurt. There's blood all over this thing. What is this black menace that kills everything it sees and hears? No human mind could imagine the enormous destructive power of this maddened, killing thing. If you're young people in love, look out. If you're driving a lonely road, you're as good as dead. There's been a lot of livestock missing lately. That doesn't make headlines, but now it's people. Never in the history of the United States, a monster of such size and power and horrifying hatred of man. I love the shrews. I do love the shrews, but the Gila monster, just because it's a giant lizard. Uh, <laughs> and, and oh my gosh, and then you got a song. <laughs> I was going to say, there's music in that one. I don't know if there's a song about the giant Gila monster, but no, there's a there's lot not of... a song about the Gila monster, but no, I, I get a big kick out of that movie. And I, I think it's a lot of fun. You know, the, I was probably introduced to that film like a lot of people through MST, but I've, I've watched it on its own and I, I think that film is all it's just a it's a great ball of fun and the remake is actually a lot of fun too I don't know if you've seen that did, did you ever get around to seeing Gila we, we did uh, years ago here on the show uh, Scott Morris and I talked about the giant Gila monster and briefly touched on the remake uh, I remember walking away from it feeling a little mixed okay. like there were some things that I liked and some things that I were a little cold on um, I did like the lead actor, but more because he'd played Captain Kirk in a Star Trek fan series. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and Kelly Maroney's in that, too, and she's always fun to see. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But no, it, Giant Heel Monster's got the music. Um, it's got the laugh, children laugh song and all that. Yes. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. But no, it is just, it's just a fun film. I mean, Shrews has its merits, mm-hmm. but I think it's just for sheer fun watchability i go with gila monster okay all right i've lost track so i'm just going to do one more here okay i've yeah we kind of threw everything off with that second (laughs) uh question so no worries no worries from the universal deck what's your favorite follow-up to the invisible man oh honestly i'm not sure i i have one i've tried watching some of the follow-ups and they really started leaving me cold quick I mean, they really, they go into the, the comedy, they go in, you know, the invisible woman and mm-hmm. it's the invisible woman. Yeah. Yeah. They, they lose me real quick and they, they like lose the invisible man real fast. It's almost like I struggle to even call some of them follow-ups other than the, they have the word invisible in the title. <laughs> yeah. I think the second one is an actual sequel. Uh, the one right. with Vincent Price and John Carradine. Mm-hmm. The invisible woman, nothing to do with it at all. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the other ones also are pretty. Well, they might have like a same name. 
Uh, wasn't it like the Invisible Spy or they did? There is the Invisible Agent. I do like Agent. that one quite a bit. Um, okay. But it's very different. Very different. Right. Yeah. I, I, I tried to kind of get through and started watching those. And I have to admit, they were struggling to keep my attention. Oh. So if I had to have a favorite, it probably maybe it would be the second one just because it is a legitimate sequel. And it's got Vincent Price. So. Right. Fear. Fear of the unknown, the unseen grips the populace. As a human being made invisible and insane by a potent drug, preys on the citizenry, intent on vengeance. Prison walls cannot hold him. Scotland Yard cannot stop him. And while science works frantically, while a loved one waits and hopes, the invisible hands of a condemned murderer deal out death and destruction. Thank God. I don't understand. Jeffrey, he's invisible. Why can't I see him? Oh, he's here, is he? Catch him, Inspector. He wants to kill me. Yeah, you can't go up there. Go for it. I'll do. Okay, afraid, darling. I could leave any moment I like. Take care of yourself, darling. I'll be all right. Helen, don't look at me like that. Jeffrey, he didn't kill Michael. Oh, didn't he? That shows how little you know, dear old Richard. We'll, we'll take it. Yeah. All right. So that was an awkward attempt at playing the classic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Didn't mean to stump Chris too much, but uh, yeah, we played around. Yes. You win. Well, <laughs> like I said, you know, some of the people that are on the show, like yourself, you guys have this ability to just pull some of these things out of your head and think so fast on your feet. I'll listen to this episode again, maybe 20 minutes later, I'll think, oh, this is what I should have said. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, man. No worries at all. It's, it's, it's an icebreaker. It's a way to kind of warm things up, and it's fun to do, and, and listeners Absolutely. seem to dig it, too. You mentioned Lugosi earlier, and that's the man whose film we're talking about today, kind of. He's got top yeah. billing, but he's not in the movie all that much, unfortunately, because I love him in the film. Mm-hmm. It's a film from the pre-code era. A Night of Terror, 1933. It is pre-code, I believe. It's been credited as pre-code everywhere I can see. And it does it does make sense, although it doesn't have some of the hallmarks that you kind of look for in the pre-code. It, if you really dive into it, you can definitely see where the uh, Hayes Code hasn't really come into play yet. There's a few things that are almost to the point where like, oh, yeah, that's pre-code. But, yeah, there's nothing on here that is – or in here that is just a flat-out Okay, this is what makes it pre-code. There's a lot in this movie where it's almost like that. It's almost like a Poverty Row film, um, but it never quite gets to that point either. Columbia distributed it. I don't know. It exists in this weird spot. Like, it could have been a bigger production, but it wasn't. But it wasn't so far down Poverty Row that it... I don't know. It's mixed feelings from it. I don't know if I'm making sense here. No, you do. And you're right. It does have that weird sort of feeling where, because you have like an anchor, like Bela Lugosi, who was fairly popular at the time. I mean, he was coming off of Dracula in 31, just two years prior to this. Mm-hmm. He was working like a dog over these years, apparently to pay off a lot of debt is what I'm, I've read. 
Right. And yeah, he does get top billing. Obviously, the studio did that for a reason because they knew that name would be a draw. But then the rest of the cast of is a lot of these not quite stars, but people you recognize, people you've seen in other films, but they're not the big stars. They're not the headliners. And then so that's exactly where this film sort of falls. It's not going to open the double feature kind of thing. Yeah, I think the only other face that I was immediately drawn to and recognized right off the bat was Wallace Ford. Sure. Who was in a couple of the Mummy sequels over at Universal. And you mentioned Lugosi just working like mad. I mean, he shot this, what, in the evening while shooting another movie during the day. Right. So, I mean, he was working hard. And we were talking about his theatrical work earlier. There were plenty of times in his career where he would be doing stage work. And then when he wasn't on stage, he was actually shooting a film somewhere. Same time. And would oftentimes bring the cast from one to, to the other and vice versa. I mean, it was just crazy how much this man was working. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was both, I think, a kind of a double-edged sword for him because apparently he had issues that he had to pay off. You know, So he was working to get the money. But I think having to work this hard is what made him kind of maybe fall into a little bit of some of the um, substance abuses that he suffered from. Just yeah. to kind of keep moving. <laughs> yeah, and it's unfortunate, but yeah. On the plus side, we get a whole lot of Lugosi in the early 30s. You really do. And even if it's a character like Dagar, like he plays in here, which is pretty one note and not really in the film too much, he's still charismatic. You cannot stop watching that man when he's on screen. No, he is imposing when he's on set. He's got a an air about him. He's fantastic. He looks like he's very healthy at this point still. Mm-hmm. So he's standing very tall. He looks very fit. He's energetic. Even if it's just him screaming, I forbid it. It's like, oh, I mean, there's force behind that voice. And yeah, he's just in great form. Yeah, he cuts a very imposing figure in this and the way he's costumed and like you said the way he stands i mean he is trim you know he's fit he could take anybody out he's the man here he's not the bella who is working for peanuts practically or yes. poverty row i mean he's eating well he's treating himself right he's not dealt with as many demons as he would later in his life just fun to watch fascinating to watch absolutely uh, and then Wallace Ford, like I said, it's the only, only other name that I recognize. But you spend a lot of times over on Orphaned Entertainment watching a lot of Poverty Row, Public Domain, stuff that's kind of slipped through the cracks. Did you recognize any of the other actors and actresses in this film from any of the films that you watch for that show? Yeah, I recognized um, Sally Blaine. Liddy and I have seen her twice before over on Orphan Entertainment. We saw her in a 1932 film called The Reckoning where she played a, a girlfriend to a guy that was involved in like the, no, not a mob, but involved with a, with a crook who tried, who tried to convince her boyfriend to go straight. Kind of interesting film, also pre-code, so you get a lot more pre-code of in, in that particular pre-code. Okay. And then we <laughs> saw her again as the, uh, the lead female in Phantom Express in 1932. So two, two films prior to Night of Terror. Okay. Uh, both in 1932. Phantom Express, she's just a girlfriend. Uh, she is the lead, but she's like the romantic interest in the film. The Phantom Express is not quite as, um, oh, phantomy ghost-like as you might think from the uh, title. <laughs> it's more of a crime drama. <laughs> uh, 
Well, you mentioned Sally Blaine, and I wanted to go look. I wanted to know more about her, so I just pulled up her Wikipedia page while you were talking about those titles. And uh, she was a silent film actress. It looks like a lot. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, so she started early in Hollywood. Yeah. Oh, very early. Uh, was it say she started in like 1917? Wow. When she was a child, she was a child actress, and then kept with her career until I, I think until probably until she, until her death. Or at least until retiring right prior to her death. She was in a film in which she appears in skimpy lingerie. And I just did a Google image search. And oh my goodness, you can see her shoulders. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and wow, I should, how risque. <laughs> yeah, I think I should correct myself. I think she retired sometime after the, in the 50s. But she, uh, she, she stayed with us until the 90s. So she, uh, wow. I think she just retired. But she was definitely a very prolific actress. Wow. It looks like she's done a lot. And that's one of the things that I love about this show is that I, I keep finding more and more people that I need to investigate because I thought the cast in Night of Terror was pretty good. And I'd like to know a little bit more about the careers of some of these people. Yeah, she's fun. And I, I, I would recommend some of the films that was just talking about. Uh, certainly The Reckoning, I think, is an interesting one. It's got an ending that maybe you'd expect, but you wouldn't necessarily expect it from a film of this time. And because it's pre-code, you get the ending that you get. And I don't want to give things away. And I'm, I'm sounding very mysterious and everything here. I apologize. <laughs> but because it's pre-code, because it's so early, uh, it, it makes it a, an interesting watch. Okay. When the movie first starts and it's doing the roll call of people, I am so unfamiliar with some of these actors and actresses that at first I thought it was a cast breakdown. Because it's showing you an image of the person from the film and then their name. Right. And after the third Reinhardt, I started thinking, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) They're not all related in real life. Come on. That was was interesting. I don't know if I had ever seen that before. (laughs) Then they actually show, okay, these are the characters you're going to see. Not the actors. These are the characters. I'm like, well, that's awfully interesting. I don't think I've ever seen that. It felt like a serial you know, the way the serials sometimes do it. Yeah, you keep waiting for so-and-so as Commander Cody. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or some sort of title card to tell us more about what's going on. And we almost get that with, like, the location, the Reinhardt Estate. You know, it's like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here we are. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this movie feels, like I said, it's just in that weird spot between pre-code, poverty. Is it a, Could it have been a serial? I, I, it probably could have been the way the story is structured. I could see maybe somebody coming in and chopping it up and make it into making it into like a a ten chapter thing. Yeah, I definitely be, well because of the I mean the main well not even the main. There's actually kind of like two main plots that go on in this film. The one being the the madman that's going around and stabbing people and and leaving like uh, what was it newspaper clippings of his own crimes <laughs> you know pinned to their backs. And I thought, well, you know, that's a story right there. Yeah. But no, then they, they also throw in that there's a scientist who's developed a, who says he's developed a serum that would allow him to be buried alive and, and then be brought back. You know, like, oh, okay, that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> and you merge those two together. All right. I'm in. Sure. <laughs> there's a lot here to really like, though. I mean, I, I like the, the mad scientist kind of story. And Lugosi, for once, is not the mad scientist. No, he plays a very interesting role. I mean, they take full advantage of the fact that Lugosi is not your usual Hollywood actor. He's not Wallace Ford, you know, <laughs> here in this film. <laughs> no, nobody's quite Wallace Ford, though. Yeah, well, 
<laughs> they uh, they put him in uh, in very particular clothes. They give him a turban. Again, you know, his accent doesn't go with any nationality that would typically wear a turban. I don't think. But the, what was the typical American audience know? You know, so they definitely play up on it and make him sort of the the live-in mystic or the live-in. Um, well, I think he's supposed to be a butler, but he definitely has a different edge to it. I almost thought he was like the live-in swami or something like that. Yeah. Pardon the term if that's not appropriate, uh, but that that probably fits with the time of this when this film was made. There's a few things in this film that fit with the time in which this film was made, and, and I'm sure we'll get to uh, the chauffeur here in a little bit, but because uh, <laughs> I struggled with that. Uh, well, yeah, that is a little unfortunate. Yeah, and it's not even Manton Moreland style quality. Anyway. In the show in the past, I've talked briefly about how I believe it's Gary Rhodes who's kind of broken down most of Lugosi's film careers into certain categories. You know, the vampire, the foreigner, the the mad scientist, that sort of thing. And in this movie, he is solidly in the foreigner role where he's got the accent and he's a little bit weird and a little bit different. But he is just the butler. You know, he's not really manipulating a lot of things. He's not really responsible for a lot of what's going on. He just has his role that he plays. He does tell Sika what to do mm-hmm. or tries to, but overall he's just the butler. And like you said, he's wearing a turban. So they made use of his yeah. accent. <laughs> yeah. And it, it throws you off, but because he's Bella Lugosi, because he's the guy in the turban, because he's the foreigner, you expect him to have some role in what is going on. Yeah. And he's, just there. <laughs> well, even the movie posters, you know how I like to take the movie posters and, and manipulate them in Photoshop. Even some of the movie posters list him as Bela, Dracula, Lugosi. So they were really taking advantage of Bela as this villainous character, this this person that they have in their movie. Look, we've got horror villain Bela Lugosi, you know? So they're really trying to play that up. Right. And at one point, they even kind of throw him under the bus. Maybe he's responsible. Now, before we even accidentally slip, Chris, I don't think either one of us really need to explain the ending of the movie. I mean, we were warned by the maniac himself. Yeah. If we if we reveal That's the ending true. of this film, we're in trouble. So, you know, listeners, right. don't get your hopes up. <laughs> yeah, no. But on, on that subject, though, what did you think of the maniac breaking the fourth wall to the audience? It took me... I don't know. I One of my favorite Lugosi films is The Return of the Vampire. And at the end of that movie, there is a break of the fourth wall where the, the police mm-hmm. inspector officer, I don't believe in vampires. Do you? And he points at the audience. Okay. All right. I'm cool right. with that. And I know Lugosi himself in some stage productions of Dracula would actually get up on stage at the end of the film and tell people that, you know, this isn't just, this isn't just a play because there are such things as us. And, you know, really kind of break that fourth wall there too. In this though, it felt really kind of oddly placed. It took me a second to realize what was happening. What about you? I agree. And I, I it almost felt like, Oh, okay. We need like two more minutes to make this feature length. What do we do? The movie is super <laughs> short, and I, was, I had that thought too because the movie runs like an hour five tops. So yeah. let's throw in one little tiny bit at the end to, to warrant it being a feature length for whatever reason. It just didn't seem to work as well as some of these other examples have. Well, especially. Well, I guess I can't really give away the real problem with the maniac coming on and telling us not to tell the ending because I'd have to tell the ending. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, that's the best spoiler warning ever. You know, if you ruin this movie, I'm going to come to your house and get you. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's a far cry from Ferris Bueller telling us to go home from the movie theater. I mean, <laughs> a very different fourth wall break. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. No, I didn't care for it at all. I really, really did not like it. It was weird. It was weirdly and oddly placed. Bizarre. I mentioned uh, the chauffeur. He He's played by Oscar Smith, who was an actor, had a lot of, uh, had a long career. But like I said, he's no Manton Moreland. And I'm going to assume the stuttering speech patterns were worked into the script, that that wasn't his own natural speech, considering that he had a career outside of this film. But I, I really mm-hmm. did not like him at all. I, I thought he had one of the best lines, one of the best, uh, yeah, one of the best lines, just the way it was delivered was a little off, where he talks about being the first man in history who's going to fly without wings if he runs into the maniac. And I thought that was great. Oh, yeah, that was really good. But he is definitely, they play him up as, quote unquote, the black chauffeur. It feels awkward watching it now and you you you, you kind of cringe knowing that that was once normal I mean, you can watch <laughs> some of these movies uh, like i said man tim Moreland did a lot of this but his characters always still had a little bit of dignity to them i feel like a lot of the times whereas i feel and may, maybe that's a stretch to me but that's not quite the word but I don't cringe as badly thinking about Moreland's role. Any of the movies that I've seen him in, I don't cringe as badly as I did with this guy, with Oscar Smith and the chauffeur. And of course, later in the movie, the white woman steals the joke about being the first person to fly without wings. So, you know, I, yeah, well, she's at least, she's at least quoting the, the chauffeur. Well, that's so, true. Give some credit, it, give some credit. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. No, there's other films I've seen that have had, you know, the same, role in the same um you know they've had a black actor playing the same role he played the the scaredy cat chauffeur but he's played more as although still working for someone else he still kind of has more of a um equal footing with the other stars of the film yeah with oscar here with this role did not and he is just played for the laughs and kind of to be sort of made fun of and to be the comic relief, I suppose. Yeah. You sit here and watch the body. I don't need to watch the body. Yeah. just mm. Yeah. It's over the top a little bit too much. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I suppose you run into that with some of these films sometimes. And I just, like I said, I, in the past on various, on various topics here on the show, I don't want to gloss over it because I don't want to be disrespectful to the history of it, but it is something that did happen. And if you go to this movie cold, not knowing it's there, well, consider yourself warned. You're going to run into it. I don't feel like it was enough to ruin the movie for me. I found the movie very enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. No, it's, it's not like it's in the bulk of the film or it doesn't drag everything down, but it, it is there. And so if you're particularly sensitive to that sort of thing, yeah, fair warning. But yeah, I, I think you can get through it. Uh, another character I wanted to mention in the film, you talked about there being a resident mystic at the home. What was Sika's role here in in the house? I know she wasn't just there to go into trances. Well, I assumed that she was the wife of Lagosi's character, of Degar. Right. And she just happened to live there too, or did she have a... a a function in the household. I was just trying to figure that part out. I didn't well, quite catch yeah. that. Well, maybe they were a husband and wife maid and Butler team. Uh, that's all I could guess. That's what I got from it. I mean, obviously Degar looks like he actually lives within, in the residence. So if he's married, then so would his wife. 
but I have a feeling that maybe maybe she served as a, as a bit, as a maid as well. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, it's not overly clear to me, but she does go into trances a few times in the film, mm-hmm. even though Dagar forbids it. It wasn't unheard of, I don't think, in the you know twenties and thirties that everyone had this sort of um, predilection to the the mysticism and the idea of having sort of the the, the live in mystic. Mm-hmm. or at least the the regular mystic that you would rely on, I don't think is too far-fetched. Now, they obviously don't say that in this film, or they don't necessarily even give you an impression that that's what's happening, but that was, I mean, if you want to read into it, that's kind of what I would read into it. Now that you've said that, yeah, it occurs to me that you do see that in a lot of these movies, and I suppose that does make sense. Culturally, that is something that you saw a little bit more of uh, so-called mystics and mediums and seances being held and all of that being a thing. Yeah, that makes sense to have that in there. Yeah, maybe that's why they don't really point it out because it's like, well, yeah, every rich family has this. You know, why would we bring it up? Obviously, you know this happens, you know? <laughs> sure. Maybe it literally it is a slice of the, of the time. Well, she's played by Mary Frey, who has no other acting credits to her name. Uh, Some crew work in the 30s as well, but not much. So Hmm. didn't do a heck of a lot. Well, I can't honestly say. I mean, her role here was fine. You know, it was serviceable. I wouldn't say that that if you had told me that she went on to do Academy Award work or something like that, maybe I'd be surprised. But the knowing that she did nothing, I can't say that it surprises me. She was a serviceable actress for the mm-hmm. role, but it wasn't like, oh yeah, I watched this film for Sika or anything. So <laughs> she was married to another actor named Clay Clement, who I know nothing about, and that might have been a reason why she stopped acting too, depending on when they got married. Yeah, oh absolutely. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah, but nobody else really in the cast really Stood out to me. And even the director, I don't know anything about. Benjamin or Ben Stoloff. Yeah, it's a name I recognize, but it wasn't anything that just like, oh, yeah, that that guy. Just because it's that very odd name, you know, you kinda, it just sticks out. So I'm knowing I, I had to have seen his name come up on the screen sometime before, but I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly when or why. Yeah, it stands out for sure. And it looks like... You know, I did a little bit of digging on him. He did a lot of work in the 20s as well, so I'm assuming he worked in the silence, which would kind of mm-hmm. make sense. There's a lot about this film that does feel like it's staged like a silent movie, so I could see that. Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely does have that feel. And that's, again, I mean, although by the 30s, you're probably, what, like a decade into the sound pictures. But, mm-hmm. yeah, there's still those holdouts, the, the directors and the producers and you can definitely see that silent touch to them. That said, there are a couple of really cool camera shots in here that I really liked. Uh, there's one in particular where you've got two characters, and I believe it's towards the beginning of the movie where they're sitting and the camera's kind of coming down towards them. So I think there's some innovative stuff happening here, which makes sense. The cinematographer was Joseph Valentine, who did Rope for Alfred Hitchcock and did a lot of Alfred Hitchcock work. So that makes total sense to me that some of the camera work is pretty solid. Yeah, no, I, I know I know the scene you're talking about. Yeah, it is. And that's whenever you see the camera not on the floor, mm-hmm. it's kind of surprising in this time, in this age of filmmaking. So that was really neat to see. There's a couple other little bits. The first time we see Lugosi, it's not like a particularly inventive shot, but it's just, it's still brilliant. 
you know, where you hear the, the rap at the door and they open the small little door and it's just Lagosi's head glaring through the, <laughs> the peephole or whatever. That and was his great. eyes are as wide as he could make them. Yes. Oh, I mean, <laughs> that was, yeah, what that's a, what a <laughs> fantastic introduction. Well, the way the whole movie starts is pretty dynamic. I mean, you've got that, but up until that point, we're getting basically one info dump, but it's, oh. th- this narrative dump is being done over the course of, numerous pairings of characters uh, it's this weird yes. game of telephone almost yeah and it's really cool it's very well done i think that's my favorite part of the film i think it, that's what really pulled me into this film it was kind of one of these things like oh it's Legosi. i'll give it a shot and then you know the first three minutes of the film i mean honestly i could probably turn it off after that but <laughs> that <laughs> that info dump is is fantastic because you get all this information about the maniac, you know, this killer that's going out. But it's all done with what six, seven different cuts of different people. You see the maniac do his crime, and then you'll see somebody about you know, like reading the paper. Oh, the maniac is at it again. How many is he killed now? And then it would cut to another scene, and someone would answer that question and. Do they have a description of him? And then you'd hit the police going, uh, known as, you know, he's been seen as a, a man of, you know, with a crazy face. And yeah, it's, and they <laughs> just keep jumping and jumping and filling it in one scene after another with these different people. It's a brilliant little piece of, of, of work there. I don't know whose brainchild that was, but that was fantastic. Very well cut together, very well paced, and a very interesting and innovative way to get the information across without just showing us a newspaper headline and expecting us to read something and then kind of get filled in that way. I mean, it really kind of communicated to us what we needed to know and that it was a bigger problem than just something happening in one little small area. I mean, everybody knew about it. Everybody knew about the maniac with the misshapen face and the slouch hat. Everybody knew about it and was able to talk about it and give that to us as the audience in a very natural way. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Yeah, no, because uh, think about what were the other options. I mean, it would, like you said, it would either be the the spinning paper and with the headline, <laughs> or it would have just literally been someone talking to someone else. You know, you'd have old maybe uh, Mary Reinhardt reading John the paper and and filling it all in. And like, how how exciting would that be? You know, they take something that could be incredibly boring and frankly has been done in many films and they make it actually a almost kind of exciting little 30 seconds to you know 60 seconds of film it works out really well there's a lot of stuff at the very beginning that makes it stand out from different types or different movies of its type of this era from the way they do the opening credits with the introducing the characters to that to even that fisheye kind of look for displaying the title on the page or on the screen excuse me on the page Displaying the title on the screen. Uh, that, that was pretty unique, too, that they were doing more than just slapping the words on the screen. They were actually paying attention to how they were presenting the mm-hmm. text. Uh, again, something that I don't expect or associate with movies from the early 30s. And this is something that, you know, going back again, sorry, or, or, Orphan Entertainment again, Lydia and I have found is there are elements of some of these films where you see that this was someone that was going to go on to do something else. Or had the potential to, whether they got a chance to or not, maybe they didn't. But a lot of times we see these, if if maybe not these particular people, maybe it wasn't this cinematographer, although you said this cinematographer went off to do and work with Hitchcock, so obviously he you know did something right. But it's not always that case, but I think it's 
other people see things and went, ooh, I'm going to try that. And then that person is the one that goes on and works with Hitchcock or that person goes on to be the, the famous director or the famous cinematographer. And that makes it really interesting. That's one of the things that I love going back to the, the, the 20s and 30s films because you see these the foundations, I guess, and you can see where people are experimenting. And I think that's probably the best word is these are filmmakers experimenting with this new medium, relatively new medium. All this is what now we've grown accustomed and we're used to that we're, we don't even notice. That's a really good point. And it's something that I love about these older films too is because the medium is so young, you're still learning what you can do. There's no quote-unquote rules in place and how you have to do opening credits and how you have to cut something together and how you have to end a movie. There's no standard in place. So people are just forced to come up with something on their own and you get some really neat stuff out of it. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if this film's in the public domain. I, I kind of doubt it because it is a Columbia picture release. Are, are you aware? Do you know? I, I see it occasionally posted here and there going, you know, Bella goes to United Terror, public domain. But I would take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. I, maybe it is not technically public domain, but maybe it's a film that's sort of ignored or maybe somewhat abandoned. But uh, yeah, you can find it out there. I, I watched it on Amazon Prime. It's, it's free on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that happens with a lot of public domain films. Amazon will put it, oh yeah, it doesn't cost us anything here. So here, have a film. Um, but I have seen it posted uh, in other places as well, YouTube and that sort of thing. Yeah, I saw it on YouTube as well. I went on YouTube hoping to maybe find some other reviews or commentaries on the film itself to try to learn a little bit more about it because you know, the Wikipedia page doesn't really offer a lot and yeah. as well as the IMDb page. It doesn't even have a complete crew list. So I, I was hoping to maybe find more information and I just did not. Yeah, I mean, if you want to just say, oh, well, it's on this website and this website and this website that says it's public domain, then sure, it's public domain, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily public domain as someone who tries to dive into the public domain. Um, that's not always a, a good marker. So no, no, just because everybody else does, it doesn't mean that it's, it's in the public domain. And this was part of the original shock theater package. Mm -hmm. So somebody had the rights at that point and licensed it out to be put out as part of shock theater. Right. I mean, technically speaking, as, as I'm learning more and more, Nothing but prior to what, 19, I forget what year it is, 20-something, is public domain by definition. Uh, the cutoff is 1923. 23, I thought that's what it was because that's the big deal. January 1st this year, we're finally getting, for the first time in, in ages, we're officially getting a lot of work falling into the public domain here in the United States. Mm -hmm. But there is sort of this gray area of films of this era in the 1930s through some of the 1940s that technically by the law might not be considered public domain unless there was an actual error in the copyright and it wasn't corrected or wasn't renewed at some point. But I consider those sort of a lot of these films abandoned because it doesn't seems like no one really lays claim to them. If that makes sense. It, it makes a lot of sense. It's something that I've looked into quite a bit and you know, copyright law just 
I'm, I nerd out over it, but yeah, <laughs> it boggles my mind. If you yeah, believe me, I, I'd love to hear what you've learned. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned that it's a big swampy mess. Yeah, that exactly. A lot of the movies that we talk about here on the show, uh, just a lot of the movies that we love, you start digging and you find out that they belong to a, a film package that was sold to some bank somewhere. And then that package was then incorporated into a library that was sold to some investment company. And you right. eventually find that, say like, and I don't know if Night of Terror is part of this, but you may find Night of Terror being part of a collection of 1,000 plus titles as owned by two people in Germany. Right. And how that happened, I don't know. You know, just the way it kind of transfers. For a while, the rights to films were being used as collateral for loans. Mm -hmm. And because of that, a lot of banks ended up with a lot of film rights and they didn't know what to do with them because they were banks, not film distributors. And they would end up going to different companies and different firms from there. And it's just, it's a big mess when you start getting into some of these films. Pre-1923, you're fine. Right. You know, and right. as well as some of the others that are famously like Night of the Living Dead didn't have the copyright thing on it. And mm-hmm. yeah, I'd say Manos, but that's come up a couple of times over the years now who really does exactly. own that. So yeah, it gets really messy. It gets messy and it gets muddy. And there is the, the argument that like, well, Okay, you put it on your DVD set, but does that mean that you own it or are you just distributing it? Does that really make you the owner? There's a lot of arguments that people have tried to to put out on some of this stuff and to try to pull the stuff back into the like, no, no, you don't just because you put it out on your set doesn't mean you own it. Uh, where did you get it from? You know, what paper did you sign that said that you could put it on your DVD set? That kind of thing. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I, I changed our introduction when I introduce every show on Orphan Entertainment. I say it's the home of public domain and abandoned media to kind of give us the wiggle room because <laughs> in case. Sure. <laughs> so, so you no, know, maybe, maybe some of the films we cover aren't technically public domain, but who's really asking? <laughs> that's totally true. Uh, you know, I know that. And people who have been on the show, friends of Monster Kid Radio who do hosting on YouTube, well, not necessarily for YouTube, but have posted their hosted programming on YouTube where they're hosting a public domain film. The person who's currently distributing that movie will then come in and put a copyright strike up against that person saying, no, it's ours, even though the movie's in the public domain. Right. And that, that's happened a few times. And I'm not going to mention any name shout factory, but there are some people out there <laughs> that occasionally say they own movies like The Bring the Wooden Die, but they don't. <laughs> Yep. No, uh, absolutely. I understand. And YouTube is a big, uh-huh. I mean, we, we host a YouTube channel or entertainment has a YouTube channel where we post a lot of the films that we've covered or mm-hmm. are going to cover. And you know, the problem with some of these abandoned films and some of the legitimately public domain films is then those films have been glommed on by somebody else or sampled. I get copyright hits for somebody that has sampled audio from a film but it's in some song or it's in some other movie. And like, no, no, it's not yours. Cause YouTube can be very aggressive in there. I mean, it's just a bot. I think a lot of it is that they claim they're getting better, but a lot of it is that. Yeah. Yes. And sometimes it's just whoever said it's mine first. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it turns into a thing. I've actually had people and I've considered it over the years suggest that maybe I should do some hosting. It would be a lot of fun to do some horror host type stuff on YouTube. 
but I'm kind of terrified that <laughs> that would happen. And I don't need a copyright strike or two on my YouTube channel. Right. Yeah, exactly. When you have so much of your actual content that is in no way anyone else's but yours, you don't want someone coming along and and putting black marks against you and p- potentially losing everything that you have. Right. No, I understand completely. Yeah. While we were talking, I pulled up the copyright uh, website, uh, the U.S. copyright website, and did a search for Night of Terror, uh, hoping to find something. Uh, the online catalog only goes back to 1978, but even then, right. there are 25 listings for Night of Terror, and there's been at least one other film with that name, so who knows? Yeah, exactly. And a lot of those are maybe just like we've been talking, where it was just packaged along with a thousand and one scary movies, uh, DVD right. sets or whatever, you know, they, uh, what's it? Um, Mill Creek entertainment is, I, I think is, you know, one of the big ones, Right. but do they really own it? Who knows? But yeah, it's just been shared a lot. Yeah. I'm looking at one listing now, one title along with 1,482 other titles in a library or a collection owned by paradise films and some company in the Netherlands that I'm not going to try to pronounce. Yeah. So, yeah, who knows? <laughs> yep, exactly. So we sidetracked quite a bit. The reason yeah, I'm sorry asking about that, you, folks. no, it, <laughs> you know, I've actually I cut myself off from talking about copyright stuff, but people have said, no, that's interesting. Keep talking. So I'm leaving all this in. I'm fascinated by the public domain thing because I keep thinking about the story in Night of Terror and how you could really kind of turn it into something really big and neat. Uh, could you adapt it as an audio drama? Could you redo the film? I think there are some interesting elements here that could be expanded upon and exploited a little bit more, but there's no way I'd even touch it if it wasn't in the public domain. And that's what I was nope. wondering about. Yeah, no, I yeah, completely understand. Yeah, you like, and like we said, I mean, there are two really good stories that are actually smashed together into a okay story. <laughs> right. Either half of this film would be interesting in its own right. Uh, so yeah, you you could definitely expound on that. Did we talk about what the mad scientist is trying to do? Did we mention that at all? I mentioned it briefly. I just yeah, th- that, that he was he created a serum, and I I do like this aspect of it. And you, I wouldn't even call him. Well, in the end, you find <laughs> out he's kind of a mad scientist, but not in the way that you typically think of mad scientists. But he's created a serum that supposedly will allow him to well be buried alive and to be then brought back or to be to be woken up and his idea is that this could be used for men at sea if their ship sinks or uh, uh miners if there's a cave-in they would be able to take this and be effectively in, in a state of suspended animation until help can arrive i thought wow that's a real interesting take on or idea that i had not ever heard of before i thought that was really neat yeah i liked that a lot as well that you said earlier that you mentioned it briefly and that's about as much as the movie does too it doesn't spend a lot of time exploring that too much which is unfortunate because that's a really cool idea well outside of the fact that he's bringing a lot of um contemporaries in to see him do this experiment and to validate his work but it is just this this little oh how, how how is that useful oh well tell that to a guy caught in a cave in or you know trapped at sea like oh okay well, that's interesting but that's all it gets beyond yeah. that <laughs> 
as far as why he's doing it. Right. Yeah, it's too bad. It could have been explored a little bit more. But like you said, they smash it into this murder mystery thing with the maniac. Who is the maniac? Why is he going around killing people? And it kind of dilutes both stories the way they've been mashed together. But mm-hmm. it's still enjoyable. I still had fun watching it. You know, I mentioned Wallace Ford earlier and his interactions with the, the woman he's flirting with, I think, are a lot of fun. So I had fun with that, especially during the hat sequence when he accuses her of having a bunch of gentlemen callers over. Look at all these hats. Oh, well, they're mine. Oh, yeah. Well, let's try them on. I thought that was a fun <laughs> little scene. Yeah, it was cute. I, I thought he was a little too much. And again, you know, I hate to keep saying of this time or anything, but he's he he plays a reporter and he's very much the newspaper reporter. I He's <laughs> just it doesn't fall too far from so many other newspaper reporters that are kind of staples of films of this era. And for the, honestly, for the next 10, 20 years, I mean, you see this stuff into the forties and fifties, I think. That is a trope of a lot of these lower budget films, two of the poverty row horror films, which is what made me think poverty row with this, uh, right down to the, Oh, there's news. I'm going to go to a phone. And he goes running off to the phone. It's not his phone. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Right. It's not his house, but he's going to go to the phone and like he's got the right to the phone. Right. Well, okay. I mean, that's what they did in these films, I guess. And I don't know if that's how it was, but, you know, it was just enough to tell the editor that you figured something out. You didn't have to go home and write it or anything. It was just yeah. enough to call it in. I got a new story for you. Yeah, I got a story. The maniacs killed again. Yeah, at the Reinhardt estate. Yeah, same stuff. Okay, bye. Yeah. Wait, that's it? <laughs> Give us a little more, man. Yeah. Overall, I had a good time with the movie. Um, yeah, yeah. It's fun. If anyone's curious what exactly makes this sort of pre-code, I, the only thing that really pegged it for me was the bumbling cops. After the Hayes Code is enforced, the police officers are no longer shown as being the inept force that they are here. Yeah. There, there may be one as like comic relief. But, yeah, sure, the, sure. but the police, the authority figures, ultimately is always shown to be in control. And in this, it's the reporter that kind of fixes everything and then the cop kind of repeats them. Well, that's what I was going to say, you know. Yeah. So you do have that element here. But again, I kind of like that. I like Wallace Ford in the Mummy movies I've seen him in. So I was okay with that. But I see what you're saying, too, that he kind of mm-hmm. plays the stock newspaper reporter. Right. Yep. Yeah. But I just wanted to point that out as far as because we were saying that this is pre-code and, you know, there's nothing salacious. The Sally right. Blaine is not in her, you know, negligee or anything like that. There's no graphic murders, although the the maniac is effectively kind of maniacal. But if you know anything about pre-code and post-code, that is the only thing that really stands out is the inept police force. Pretty much. Or like Chris said, you can find it on Amazon Prime. Right or wrong, it's on YouTube. I have it on DVD. I picked it up somewhere at some point along the way. It's easy to see, and it's just barely over an hour long. And I'd love to be able to discuss the ending with you, so make sure you see the movie first, and then I can, because otherwise the maniac will come and get me. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But yeah, feel free to maybe message us, you know, over at the Monster Kid Radio Facebook group or something like that. There you go. There you go. Orphanedentertainment.com. And timeshifterspodcast.com. That's where you're going to find Mr. Christopher Page on his own shows when he's not crashing Monster Kid Radio. Dude, we got to get you back on the show again sooner rather than later. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for being part of the show, my friend. 
There's an enemy spy at large, an invisible man. It's, it's amazing. Oh, you will be of great help to us. Who is this terrifying Phantom Commando? What is his amazing mission? See The Invisible Agent, suggested by H.G. Wells' Invisible Man, starring Ilona Massey and John Hall, with Peter Lorre, Sir Cedric Hardwick, J. Edward Bromberg, Albert Bosserman, in the most amazing story of our times. Stop! Steady now. Don't let him get away. Who is there? How did you know I was going to England? I didn't, but... So but the I... trap was all set, eh? Oh, Frank, how can you talk like that? Oh, oh what's this? Uh, it's full of hooks. Uh, oh, they're tearing into me. In January of 1974, the American Broadcasting Company brought forth on this continent a new sitcom, conceived by Gary Marshall and dedicated to the proposition that the 1950s were awesome. That sitcom was, of course, Happy Days. It ran for 10 years and 255 episodes, casting a long shadow across American popular culture. Week after week, millions thrilled to the adventures of Richie, Fonzie, Joni, Hotsey, Ralph Mouth, and the whole gang from Milwaukee. Hello, friends. I'm Joe, and I'm half of the broadcasting team behind These Days Are Ours, a podcast dedicated to all things Happy Days. Together with my co-host Emily, we'll be exploring the series episode by episode, breaking down the themes and telling you what it all means. You can join us on this journey by visiting thesedaysareours.libson.com. Just like the original Happy Days, we'll have new episodes every Tuesday. Be there or be square. A remote Pacific island where an expedition of world-famous scientists investigate incredible rumors of its fantastic mysteries and discover barren volcanic mountains surrounding strange green valleys. Mammoth caves that breed giant mutations. Vampire plants that devour humans. But most astounding of all, the tiniest women in all creation. Sacred beauties of a lost tribe which worships a monstrous creature. What is the secret of Mothra? What is the bizarre spell that awakens Mothra as these doll-sized girls call to this super god from captivity? Mothra, whose revenge is more devastating than any man-made weapon. Mothra, who defies warplanes. Ocean liners. 
smashes dams and bridges. Mothra, creating hurricanes. Mothra, enveloped in a shell that no human force can penetrate. Mothra, indestructible, all-powerful, indescribable. What kind of creature is this god monster, Mothra? As I said at the beginning of the show, the band, the Surf Zombies, have a number of shows coming up. I learned about these by going to their Bandcamp page, surfzombies.bandcamp.com. And I'm just going to tell you right now, if you're in the Iowa area, you can find them playing at a number of different venues. Hook's Pub in Clinton, Iowa on Sunday, November 18th. On December 1st, they're going to be playing at the Replay Lounge in Lawrence, Kansas. On December 7th, they're going to be playing at Ribco in Rock Island, Illinois. December 21st, they're going to be playing at the Big Grove Brewery in Iowa City, Iowa. And December 28th, at the Gas Lamp in Des Moines, Iowa. Like I said, you can find them at surfzombies.bandcamp.com. The new album is called Return of the Skeleton. I love it. And even the album art is cool. The green slimes are here! Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look! Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. <laughs> oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. That sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show. Oh, will do. Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see. Buried within the uncharted depths of waters surrounding a group of islands off the 50th parallel lies man's most formidable challenge. The awesome awakening of prehistoric monsters long thought extinct. Science was baffled and powerless. A terror-stricken humanity knew that it was on the brink of total destruction. The once proud civilization now had to place its trust and hope in Godzilla and his powerful ally, Robot Man. In concert, they would fight this evil in a duel to the death. Battling by day, battling by night, it was more than a race against time. This war was an all-out effort whose ultimate purpose was to save our planet from total destruction. Now came the moment of truth. 
the ultimate battle. Giant against giant in the most spectacular battle yet. To see it all in Godzilla versus Megalon. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and drop in the raw audio that I recorded at the Joy Cinema. Spoilers ahead for Dracula versus Frankenstein. They have never lived before as they live now. One man has already died, and the other was never born. Both exist in a world between life and death. Both long to be human. Neither can ever be. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Ten dead men's bodies were used to fashion Dr. Frankenstein's infamous creature. Tens of dozens of victims have kept Count Dracula alive for three centuries. Only one of these beings will survive their meeting. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Brand new thrills, brand new horror, brand new shock. Dracula versus Frankenstein in color, rated GP. I think I might go home and uh, rush this into this week's episode of the podcast just because I can, which means this may not be edited. This may be something that uh, listeners just get kind of raw. So I'm at the Joy Cinema. We just got done watching this week's Weird Wednesday offering. It was a movie that I talk about all the time, a movie that I love so much. Dracula versus Frankenstein, an Al Addison film, 1971. I didn't see it alone. This was probably one of the biggest nights for Weird Wednesday in a long time. It was a big crowd. Big, big crowd. And of course, Jeff's here. Jeff, what's up, man? Uh, that was a, that was an interesting movie. Interesting. Yeah. Is that, is that code for anything? Uh, interesting rhythmic devices that seem to underpoint the <laughs> underpoint the surrealism of the underlying metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, no, it wasn't as bad as Vogue Poetry. I quite liked it, actually. <laughs> that movie is just, um, it's something else. So I introduced the movie, and uh, if the video turned out, okay, it's going to end up on the YouTube channel within a week or so. Uh, so listeners can look forward to that, or or not, I suppose, depending on how you feel about the film. Uh, when I introduced the movie, I talked about Lon Chaney Jr., I talked about Jake Aaron Nash, and a few other people, but there's some things that I didn't mention about this film I wanted to run by you, Jeff, since this is the first time viewing for you. So, uh, the electronic equipment, the electric equipment, that is the original Frankenstein equipment. 1931. That's right. Ken Strickland did that, uh, or provided a lot of that equipment. However, um, it didn't always work. So, what happened was, say, they needed Ken Strickland himself to make it work, right? But he didn't want to come to set. He, I don't know what his deal was. So, they ended up taking some of the equipment to Ken Strickland's house, uh, because that's you know he owns it. Set up in his garage, got Ken to turn everything on, and they shot a bunch of close-ups. So every time you see a close-up of an electric device sparking in the scenes with the Frankenstein's monster being brought to life or whatever, those are all insert shots that were shot in Ken's garage. <laughs> whatever is necessary, what, do what you got to do. And of course, we have 4 J. Ackerman in the film. 
Uh, 4J Ackerman, legendary man. Dr. In, Beaumont, I think Yes, as Dr. Yeah. Beaumont. I don't know if that's a play on Charles Beaumont, who wrote a lot of Twilight Zone and was, I believe, friends with Ackerman, or at least friends with that circle of people. It'd be a nice homage if it was. I would think so, too. Um, of course, he's in the movie. He did not have a stunt double, so when he's getting crushed by the Frankenstein monster, that's really him. He did have an injured arm at the time, so it was a little iffy, but whatever. I <laughs> So this movie got the cover of a Famous Monsters of Filmland. Famous Monsters of Filmland talked this movie up like it was something special. Because Forrest Ackerman's in the movie, I can see why. <laughs> what do you think of, of his role in the film? I... Uh, Really short. Um, not a lot. Of devel- All the development for the Beaumont character is what you hear about from Doctor Frankenstein and Dracula talking about him. We don't. <clears throat> excuse me. We don't actually uh, encounter him ber- berating Frankenstein. Uh, we're told that he's done these things to Frankenstein. We don't actually see it. So really, he just ends up being this guy that gets waylaid by Dracula, taken to the creature, and then killed. I suspect there was, or at least I would hope, there was more stuff with that character before they decided, well, no, that doesn't make sense either, because Frankenstein's monster is integral to that pit. I don't know. I have no idea. I have no answers to this. Unfortunately, Al Adamson isn't around to ask. Uh, Do you know what happened to him? I do not. Uh, He was murdered. Uh, he disappeared for a while, and it turned out his live-in contractor uh, was found guilty of killing him and uh, putting him underneath, the, I believe, the hot tub, and then built the hot tub on top of him. I, I, I could be a little off on the details there, but it's unfortunate, because, I mean, Al Adamson deserves an Oscar or something, right? A Lifetime Achievement Award? <laughs> Maybe a Razzie. <laughs> the, fe- the female lead is his girlfriend at the time she would go on to become his wife uh, so what did you think of her uh, she was okay I, I actually really enjoyed her musical number at the beginning her, her Vegas number uh, that was real that was real that was something that she used to do that was a, a real routine she was a showgirl type well, no wonder she was so well practiced at it um, otherwise you know I like that she cared about her sister enough to go looking for her um at the end, clearly, she's going to need some serious therapy. I mean, what she went through at the end there, the abduction, uh, seeing her boyfriend murdered uh, by a bolt of lightning. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the, the creature and Dracula fighting over her, she's going to have some issues. So you mentioned uh, the boyfriend getting murdered, Anthony Isley uh, playing Mike. The fact that he gets killed. That surprised me. I didn't see that coming. (laughs) I don't think it was actually Anthony Isley that was filmed running away. I think it was somebody else in the clothing. Um, But, yeah, that was... uh, Kind of out of the blue, I thought, but but fun. Um, did the change in Dracula makeup? Did you notice that? Uh, yeah, it got really Halloweenish at the end, and I don't mean Halloween the movie. I mean like someone putting on Halloween makeup for Halloween. Uh, it went from a, I thought a really neat look, a really neat look for most of the movie, and then towards the end there, 
uh, it just looked like it was put on in front of a bathroom mirror. Now, that's until Dracula dies, and they do, you know, they cut away a few times, you know, so they can have it age. I thought that was actually really well done. Really? Okay, so... The, the disintegration yeah. scene. So the disintegration scene, uh, very interesting. Al Adamson didn't want to do that. This was something that Sam Sherman came up with. He was the producer. And uh, the way they shot that, there's not a lot of makeup. In fact, there's very little makeup involved. Most of that is just the dirt and leaves they found. Or sorry, I found a camera and smeared all over his face and then lightened his hair. <laughs> it, it was effective. Well, except and, for that then, really bad white skull thing. But well, and then, instead of turning to dust like so many vampires do, uh, we see that he did turn into dirt and leaves. Which was that? That's different. I didn't object to it. it I'm, yeah, I'm not sure how much sense it makes, but uh, it was it was it worked for the story. I own this movie on Blu-ray. Did I make a bad investment when I bought it on Blu? Did you already have it on another method? Yes, I had it twice on DVD. Yeah, then you probably didn't need to buy the Blu-ray. Oh, you were so <laughs> wrong, Jeff. Oh man, I would buy this on Blu, man. <laughs> I'm not big into replacing a movie I already own in a different form. But it's in high def. And it's got... Well, it's in high def. I, I don't know if you, this that would improve this movie. You get to see those really cheap vampire things really, really well at the end. Yeah, okay, that was terrible. Those things were not good. I loved The Ring, though. I love the, the Dracula Ring. And I like the, the Ring... On the end there, they, they end on the ring, and it's kind of given the idea the ring is right by the ashes, the, not ashes, but the sticks and dirt of the body, kind of giving the hint Dracula could return. And at one point, they were planning a sequel. In the, I believe, the 90s, they were talking about doing a sequel to this. It was going to be called, ready for this? Dracula versus Frankenstein, 2000. It, it never materialized. Bummer. <laughs> Oh, man. Did you want to say anything about the movie? Well, just that when you made the uh, statements about the film and all that, you mentioned William Lava. Uh Uh-huh. There was one... You mentioned the serials and all, but there was one other thing that you uh, didn't mention that I thought was... He was the replacement for Carl Stalling for the Warner Brothers cartoon. Yes, he was. You know, William Lava did a lot. Um... he was known in the genre circles for a lot of the serials, but yeah, he did a lot of uh, the Looney Tunes stuff. Uh, he had a very long career, tons of music by William Lava. No, you're absolutely right, man. What have you seen this movie before? Uh, no, I'm one of those that read a lot about it, saw the pictures and stuff like that, so I pretty much knew it. What did you think? Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> that long pause, <laughs> yeah. I think I might have tried once, uh, maybe after the musical number, the next thing I knew. The end. <laughs> In other words, I was out. Wow. Okay, then. All right. Well, this movie keeps me going, man. This is actually the second time I've watched it today because I watched it this <laughs> afternoon when I should have been editing this episode of Monster Kid Radio to prepare for introducing the movie. I watched it with the commentary track because the Blu-ray has a commentary track. I think the DVD does too, actually. I don't think there's any new special features on the blue, but I did watch it earlier today. So, um, yeah, and I, and I could watch this again tomorrow, the next day. In fact, Monster Kid Radio has done that Frankenstein poll that just recently closed. This made my list of favorite Frankenstein movies. <laughs> 
Uh, can we talk about the creature? Again, an interesting look. Very different than anything I've ever seen before. Um, you're talking kind of rotten marshmallowy. <laughs> oh, that's a good way to put it. I've heard rotten or moldy potato. Uh, like I said, when I introduced the movie, uh, well, lumpy paper mache, just kind of dribbled on somebody's face. But yeah, interesting look. Yeah. Uh, it looks like someone who had been decomposing before the doctor brought it back to life. You know, I can see it being kind of like bloaty, kind of, yeah, yeah I can see that. Um, you know, it's unique. It's it's different. I mean, the, the Dracula is different. You know, the Frankenstein is different. So, yeah I, I, yeah, I mean, it wasn't awful. I think Dracula was much cooler. Yeah, well, it should be cooler. He should be the epitome of cool. The the voice effect he did with Dracula's voice was uh, the echo. Really the echo. Odd. Um, but it was neat. It, it was odd, but it was neat. Uh, the blue light when he's uh, using his mental powers uh, was a nice visual touch, a, a, a clue to the audience that something extra was going on. I do like him as a Dracula. I think he's underrated. No, he's not Lugosi. No, he's not Christopher Lee. But I'd take him over Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> now, I happen to love Dracula dead and loving it. So... <laughs> Well, just that uh, I figure he's more like I'm Carradine. See, and they wanted Carradine at one point, but yeah, they, they're too expensive. Yeah, Billy Kid versus Dracula. Then. Carradine played Dracula for Universal twice. Uh, for the people who did Billy Kid versus Dracula once, he played him in a Mexican uh, kind of sort of wrestler movie once. And I think he played him one other time, but I'm kind of drawing a blank on it right now. Uh, but yeah, having him in this would have changed the feel of the film. I'm so glad they had Xander Vork. <laughs> I'm going to start the Xander Vork fan club. I think that's what I'm going to do. I like that guy. It's good. Uh, any other thoughts about the film, Jeff? Yes, you mentioned in the intro, and it's on the IMDb trivia, that at one point uh, they had the idea that Dracula would make the, the Frankenstein's monster into a vampire and I'm not sure they could have handled it well but I think that would make a terrific movie that's an interesting jumping on point to have a creature that's already superhumanly strong and then become a vampire I it might be overkill but (laughs) (laughs) that that dealt with um, uh, Frankenstein who did experiments and dug up bodies from a graveyard and transformed only it turned out that they were vampires (laughs) that was written by uh, Don Glute oh okay that that was a film right Right. it was also a film and a story very very cool yeah I've seen um, films in which like a vampire bites a wolfman kind of character no, maybe not. It's one of those howling movies. There's a vampire and a werewolf and a alligator boy or something. Anyway, Frank- <laughs> Frankenstein's monster with vampire teeth. I, I, don't, I don't... Why not? Let's throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. <laughs> Get these people involved and I'm on board. Play a little bit of Creature from the Black Lagoon music. Why not? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. The Blu-ray does have the original second ending. I guess the first ending. The original ending with the Dracula character. And it has nothing to do with that church thing or anything like that. It was uh, it was after Lon Chaney gets shot and he falls down and they're running around the roofs and all that stuff. So, I mean, that, that was there. I, honestly, I probably could have ended there. I didn't need all the stuff of the church. But it did give us the awesome 
really awesome, awesome mist. That's a word tonight. Uh, way to destroy the Frankenstein monster. Uh, yeah, it's a real Black Knight experience. This actually came out before that. Really? Okay, so the Monty Python boys were fans of Dracula versus Frankenstein. So on the commentary track, the producer Sam Sherman says that at one point when he was working for William Gaines, uh, the publisher, he had a desk across from Terry Gilliam. So I, I don't know if he's implying that Terry Gilliam got inspired for that or what, but yeah, this came out before that, so I thought that was... um. Man, just tearing Frankenstein apart at the seams. Just pull him apart. He's going to get a tug and he's done. Yeah, <laughs> as soon as the first arm came off, I'm going, it's only a scratch. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> Flesh wound. <laughs> We're not supposed to do commentary like that at Weird Wednesday. I just, I couldn't help myself. I, it didn't, no, you know, it, it didn't bother me one bit, man. This, this movie, I mean, come on, the Weird Wednesday movies... You know, it's the crowd that, that has fun at the films. And there's, there's no wrong way to have fun with a movie. And, you know, I laughed and giggled this whole time through. So I'm, I'm surprised I didn't upset people. So, yeah, um, this was just fun, man. I highly recommend it. I, I think everybody should have it in their collection on Blu-ray. Um, multiple copies, just in case one wears out. There are far worse ways to spend an hour and a half. There you go. I like that. <laughs> we should write that down for Jeff to use when he's promoting Weird Wednesday. There are far worse <laughs> ways to spend an hour and a half. All right, man. Any other thoughts on the film? Well, okay. Uh, the creature, the first thing that came to my mind was, I think it was Revenge of Frankenstein, uh, uh, the horse, the hammer sequel, that the face is kind of like similar to that. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. A little bit. And uh, the death... The death of Dracula here kind of reminded me a little bit of Christopher Lee in the first horror, the horror of Dracula, sure. where yeah, down and yeah, definitely. Um, I did like the way Dracula went out, despite the the pasty white makeup. Did like it went out. So anyway, that was Weird Wednesday. Far worse ways to spend an hour and a half. <laughs> That brings us to the end of the show this week. Thanks for listening and being part of the Monster Kid Radio audience, whether you're a new listener or you've been around from the very beginning. I just appreciate you downloading me and putting me in your ears to talk about classic monster movies. I had a blast this week. Big thanks to Ken. Big thanks to Chris. Big thanks to you. You can always learn more about Monster Kid Radio over at monsterkidradio.net, where you can find our contact information. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com and our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. If you want to call in about anything you heard this week or in any of the previous episodes, please feel free to call that in. Or if there's any events coming up that you want other Monster Kids to know about, I'd like to share that with people here on the show as well. For example, if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, Later this month, the Hollywood Theater here in Portland is showing the original Nosferatu with a live pipe organ playing. It's going to be amazing. It's on Saturday, November 24th. Two showings, 2 p.m. and 7 p.m. I'm going to the 2 p.m. show, and I've already bought my ticket. I recommend you do so as well. Head over to hollywoodtheater.org. And theater is spelled with an R-E at the end. Anyway, there'll be a link in the show notes. 
I do have a little bit of feedback that I'm going to sit on because Brenda's not on the show this week. We're going to have her on the show probably next week, and then we'll start going over the emails that I have sitting here in the Monster Kid Radio email box. Of course, at the website, you can also find a link to our Patreon page, our Facebook group, our Facebook page, just everything we've got going on. That's your primary source. That's where you're going to go for all things Monster Kid Radio. What's coming up next week? Well, okay. I introduced Dracula versus Frankenstein earlier tonight, and we talked a little bit about that here on the show. I'm currently wearing a Bela Lugosi shirt. I just mentioned the Nosferatu screening coming up. I'm in a vampire mood, so why don't we keep that vampire vibe going next week on the show? We're going to talk about the classic Hammer film, Horror of Dracula. This is the story of Dracula. A creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise. try and understand. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. Castle Dracula is summoned here in Klausenberg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. This is the doctor who dares to challenge the vampire Dracula. This is the anguished man who fears for the lives of his beloved, the girl who is his sister, and the one that is his wife. Dracula, the bedeviled master of all that is evil. listener of the show, Stephen Lee, will be joining me next week to talk about Horror of Dracula, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So come back for that. Stay tuned. Keep your podcast locked in, and you're going to hear that in seven days. Between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Return of the Skeleton that belongs to the Surf Zombies. It's from their album, Return of the Skeleton, which just came out last month. You can pick it up on Bandcamp at surfzombies.bandcamp.com $10 for the digital album, 15 songs. Check it out or any of their other albums. And again, make sure you let them know that you heard them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Ciao.